five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the last episode of our annual summer season special. Today we have a future in space operations presentation by Bradley Jolliffe of Washington University in St. Louis. The topic, the motivation and challenges for sampling the moon's giant south pole, Aitken Basin. Listen in. I'm going to talk about um, several efforts that our team made to propose missions to return samples from the giant South Palakian Basin on the moon. And Jim was a part of that team. Um, we're, we're not currently active, but well, oh, we're very active in doing things related to Artemis and CLIPS and, and other sorts of missions. But um, Jim was really integral to that. And I, I wanna just say, even, even though my name is on this, it's a fabulous team that worked on these New Frontiers proposals and, and that's really what you need. And I wanted to also call out um, my good colleague uh, in, at, at JPL, now retired Leon Alkali, who was our, our capture lead. We did three New Frontiers proposals, made it to phase A twice, lost to missions um, of the caliber of number one, Juno, number two, OSIRIS-REx, and um, this last round, um, we didn't make it to phase A, but of course, Dragonfly was selected. And so you can see it's stiff competition. Um, I, I, I tell you that just as a little bit of a um, precursor to the presentation, just so you have an idea of where I'm coming from and what my background is. So I'm at Washington University in St. Louis, been studying the moon for many, many years. Uh, my interests range from samples uh, to remote sensing, to the geophysics of the moon and the, and the geologic history of the moon. So lots of exciting things going on. And um, one of the key challenges that we've faced from a scientific perspective is, gosh, don't we know an awful lot about the moon? Why do you, why do you want another mission to this place, this South Lake and Basin, and why do you need more samples? So these are some things we'll address. If you flip to slide two, um, just as a brief outline, um, many online may not be familiar with the South Palakian Basin, so we'll talk a little bit about what it is and why it's so important to us scientifically, and why do we need to collect and analyze samples from this place? Are there things that we could do in situ or things that we could do with remote sensing? Um, when we think about uh, some of the challenges, my perspective comes again from the Moonrise mission concepts, which was a sample return mission concept. And so I'll talk about the scientific challenges, some of the technical challenges, and some of the programmatic challenges. And, and really in terms of programmatic, the, the main thing that I'm concerned with here is what do we do now that we have an Artemis context? If we have Artemis missions to the south pole of the moon uh, or CLIPS missions to other parts of the moon, do we still need to do this mission to South Lake and Basin, or can we perhaps accomplish that from an Artemis perspective? And another question that comes up is, will somebody else, will China perhaps sample the South Lake and Basin before, uh, before we do? So these are interesting questions, um, at least to me. If we flip to slide number three, 
So South Lake and Basin, just on the left-hand side there, you see the, the usual views of the moon, the near side on the upper left, and then the far side on the lower right. And of course, the far side looks very different from the near side. It doesn't have all of the Mari basalt-filled uh, impact basins, but it does have one very large impact basin, and you see it sort of in the southern part, the southern hemisphere of the far side there outlined in dashed lines, and that's the South Pole-Aitken Basin. Um, it, in this view, this projection, it doesn't look really as big as, as you might um, expect when I call it a giant basin, but if you go to slide four, if we rotate the view up and we look at this as you would as if you were if you were in orbit directly over the basin and you could see the topography where red is high and blues and greens are low topography, you see this enormous impact basin. The biggest one on the moon, it's also the oldest one on the moon, and it is filled in with many other impact basins and craters that have formed since the time this basin formed. So we know it's very, very ancient. It dates nearly to the beginning of the moon, um, but we don't know that exact age. Some, it, it's a little bit elliptical, some 2,200 by 2,400 kilometers and over nine kilometers deep. So it's a, it's a huge, huge impact basin um, rivaling perhaps larger than Hellas on Mars, among the largest impact basins in the solar system. And it's certainly the closest one to us uh, to study. If we look at slide number five. Um, okay, so, you know, again, oldest and largest impact basin on the moon, and that has important um, significance. It's actually a unique location in a sense on the moon and in the solar system because it is uh, so close to us, but also because it's close to Earth, and the impact history that occurred on the moon, of course, also occurred on Earth, but it's largely erased. Um, so we have the moon to look at, we have the great antiquity of its surface to tell us about the early Earth-Moon system and solar system history at that time. Being the largest and oldest of the clearly recognizable impact basins, South Lake Basin actually anchors what I will call the lunar impact chronology. So over, over the eons, uh, over the four and a half billion years that the moon has been in existence, it's been pummeled by impacts, many of them large. And the largest of the impacts occurred early in the first, say, 500 to 600 million years of, of moon history. But what we don't know is whether the impact, the, the so-called heavy bombardment period, occurred over a long period of time as the tail off of accretion, or whether it occurred as a spike, as the Apollo samples indicate, at about four billion years ago. So the importance of the South Lake Basin is when an impact of this magnitude occurs, it, it first of all dislodges and excavates a huge amount of material, and so it so-called resurfaced a large portion of the moon. The other thing it does is it melts rocks. And when it melts rocks, it resets the radiometric chronometers that we use to determine the ages of the rocks. So we would say that it reset the ages and resurfaced an enormous area of the moon, and then all of the subsequent impact history occurred. Okay, so it anchors the chronology. If we could determine the age of it, then we know that all the other impacts that we can see on the moon occurred after that time. 
and this would give us a critical test of whether it was the tail off of accretion or whether it was a cataclysmic bombardment that occurred five or 600 million years after the formation of the moon, and if so, what caused it. So it's really critical science. The critical science in this location is to determine the basin formation age and the chronology. And I say chronology because we can also date materials and get the ages of some of those other big impacts that occurred within South Lake and Basin. The chronology that we have for the moon now is based dominantly on the Apollo uh, locations, all near-side locations, Apollo and Luna samples, all from a relatively um, small area on the moon. And of course, now the Shanga 5 sample return, which uh, China executed late last year. We go to slide number six. Um, so just to reiterate, the compelling science questions for South Lake Basin sample return is, what was the heavy bombardment history of the moon? Was there, in fact, a cataclysm? What was its duration? And if it did occur, what caused it? And uh, the, the second is, what are the implications for early Earth and the terrestrial planets? Again, um, what happened on the moon happened on the Earth in spades. And this was a critical time. The first 500, 600 million years of time is when really much of the um, modern uh, geologic aspects of the Earth began to form, atmosphere, oceans, and indeed life on Earth, um, all beginning at about this time. And so it's critical to understand what was going on then. The, the record simply is, is very poor and very limited on Earth. And thirdly, what are the implications for early solar system dynamics? The dynamicists now have a, a series of models, very interesting, that could account for this so-called cataclysm if it occurred. And it involves, in part, the migration of the giant planets early in solar system history. We have a number of very excellent models that talk about this, the Nice model, the Grand Tack, Pebble Accretion, and so forth. But these are all models, and we need some data to test them. And one of the key bits of information is the age of the South Lakin Basin, and then when all of the subsequent large impacts on the moon uh, then occurred, and in what time frame. So let's go to slide seven. And there's even more compelling science, of course. Um, those are, I've been talking about really solar system level science uh, questions. But we also have questions about the impact process, understanding very large impact basin formation processes. How deep did this impact penetrate? What were the materials that were excavated? Did it actually excavate mantle materials from the moon? And how did the moon's crust and mantle respond? What was the thermal state at the time? Of course, this relates to the age of the basin. What about the crust, mantle, and core structure? We'd like to better understand the processes that produce this large-scale planetary heterogeneity that we see when we look at the moon's near side and its far side, so very different. Thermal evolution of the moon. What was the distribution of the heat-producing elements, elements such as thorium, uranium, potassium, that are radiogenic? They produce the heat that produced volcanism over time on the moon and understanding how they were distributed is key to our understanding of how the moon differentiated and why it is so different in, in different locations, near side, far side. And again, using the volcanic rocks themselves, the basalts, as probes of the far side mantle. We don't have any samples yet of the far side mantle that we know of. Um, we have some lunar meteorites that are basalts, but we don't know where they came from. 
So we really need some of those basalts from the far side to compare with what we know from Apollo. Let's move on to slide eight. Um, we have a lot of geophysics information now. You might be thinking, um, and many of you know, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been orbiting the moon now and, and mapping and determining all of the information you'd want to know for returning humans to the surface, to anywhere on the surface of the moon, since 2009. 2011, we had a fabulous gravity recovery uh, mission called GRAIL, that mapped out the gravity of the moon in great detail, and we, we now know it probably um, you know better than any object, except perhaps and perhaps even better than uh, than than we have Earth. Beautiful gravity data set, and what you see here is a model of the crustal thickness of the moon, and you can see that there are places where the crust is very very thin. The dark blue colors those are associated with young impact basins. South Pelican Basin itself is also mapped out to be relatively thin, but this is a model. We don't know what the rock types are there, and that may have an effect. The porosity is low, the density is high. This is consistent with uh, material from, from deeper in the moon having been brought to near the surface, and then perhaps uh, differentiating into a very thick impact melt sea. Um, and, and that looks to, looks to us like crust now. Did I hear a question? Uh, okay, maybe not. That might have just been on my end. In any case, we need to know the rock types to inform these models. Um, some very nice models, but it's geophysics, and one more constraint will uh, really help us to understand um, the, the whole moon, but especially this area of the South Pelican Basin. Let's look at slide nine. We also have compositional information. 1998, Lunar Prospector beautiful orbital mission had a gamma ray spectrometer that produced a, a fabulous data set. It measured um, most of the major elements and also the radiogenic elements such as thorium. Shown here is the iron map. Iron's one of the best elements to map by this technique. And what you see is that the interior of the South Palakian Basin has this iron-rich signature. We'll just say it's the compositional signature. The point being all of the subsequent impacts that have occurred on the moon and in the South Palakian Basin have not erased this signature. The signature is still there. The materials that make up the substrate of the South Palakian Basin are still there. Uh, there are, of course, volcanic basalts, but not nearly uh, of the abundance that would be needed to explain this signature. This is, again, consistent with a high proportion of the South Palakian Basin impact melt materials still being visible and located in this area. Hasn't been mixed, hasn't been diluted um, to any great extent by subsequent impacts. If we look at slide 10, we see the same kind of map, but this time it's the element thorium. Again, radioactive, it's a trace element, but it's, heat, it, it's radioactive, and so it has a very good signature in the gamma ray uh, uh, region. And so gamma ray spectrometer data is fantastic. Again, you see the signature of the interior of the basin is still very uh, evident and very visible to us. So a um, couple of things to note be besides that is one is that the thorium anomaly, if you will call it, doesn't quite extend to the South Pole. And this will come back later when we talk about Artemis. Artemis going to a South Polar location, at least with Artemis three landing, would we be able to sample South Lakin Basin material at the South Pole? And so this, this comes back into the discussion a little bit later. 
Okay, so just kind of to wrap up and summarize the, the importance here, South Lake and Basin, it's huge, it's ancient, it's a window into the deep crust and upper mantle of the moon, it's a window into early solar system history, and it's scientifically compelling. Um, and, and again, just to emphasize, if we look at slide 12, what the key solar system sciences that we address here is number one, the South Lake Basin samples enable a critical test of the cataclysm hypothesis, which is indicated by the Apollo samples. But again, the Apollo samples all come from a relatively small area on the near side of the moon, and we could be we could be being fooled by proximity to the large uh, and relatively recent Imbrian Basin. Uh, so testing that cataclysm hypothesis. The significance for early solar system orbital dynamics, in other words, can we test these models for possible migration of the giant planets early in solar system history? And finally, the significance for the Earth-Moon system, better understanding the early impact chronology, when the big bombardment was, was happening on the Moon and on Earth. This has implications for when the Earth's continents began their growth, evolution of the Earth's atmosphere, and indeed the origin of life on, on Earth. Big science questions. Okay, let's go to um, slide 13. So the scientific significance of South Lake and Basin has been recognized by decadal surveys, uh, going back um, two decadal surveys ago, and the last decadal survey, and the one that is occurring right now um, I'm sure we'll also recognize the scientific significance of, of South Lake and Basin and its implications for history of the solar system. Um, also, there have been a number of very excellent reports, one I highlight here in the middle, the report on the scientific context for exploration of the moon. If you want to do something on the moon and it's got some science implications, it's pretty, pretty, uh, pretty likely that it was spelled out in this particular report. And many of the things we want to do on the moon, we turn to this report to say, um, okay, you know, what did the, the scientific context uh, report have to say about it? And of course, South Lake and Basin is um, prominently uh, highlighted in that report as well. Let's take a look at slide number 14. And now I want to spend a couple of slides talking about this question, why are samples needed? Um, gosh, you know, we can do so much with remote sensing, and, and those of you who, who are, you know, think, of, think like an engineer and about robotics, think anything we can, you know, we can think to do with a sample, can't we do it in situ on the surface? Well, here, here are the reasons why we need sample return. Number one, we, we need to get the rocks themselves. We can't do this with remote sensing. We need to be able to get the rocks into the laboratory to determine the chronology, to do the age dating. And for this, we use radiometric um, methods. We use the, the series uranium, thorium, lead. There are other chronometers, rubidium, strontium, samarium, neodymium, argon, 4039, and, and others. And these techniques are, are difficult to do at best, even in the best labs on Earth. So really getting the samples back and, and doing the kinds of things that need to be done to tease out the ages um, is something best done in laboratories. Now, there are some uh, very good instruments being developed to do chrono chronology on other planetary surfaces in situ. 
but they still have precisions that are on order of hundreds of millions of years, and we, we need to have precision that's more like on the order of 10 million years, and that we can get with these kinds of chronometers. So we need that's, that's the first reason we need the sample. So if we go to slide 15. What kind of sample size do you need to do this analysis? Uh, that's a, that's an excellent question. If, you, if back on slide 14, the sample uh, the samples that are highlighted here are all samples that are in the range of a centimeter or less in size, and they can be they can be as small as a few millimeters and give us good age determinations. Um, as you know, as we speak, materials like this are being analyzed uh, by the Chinese from the Shanga Five mission. So it uh, can be relatively small, and slide, slide 15 shows an example, um, rock fragments in the range two to four millimeters. This happens to be a very popular sieve size for the Apollo samples, and we have many thousands of, of samples like this, and they can be analyzed in this way. Um, large rocks are great. You see a big one there, 14321. Um, the, the bigger the rock, of course, the better the geologic context that we get. Um, but having, having the small rocks, what we know from Apollo, what we know from lunar meteorites, what we know from Luna samples, um, we can do an awful lot with small materials. Think um, Stardust, think Genesis, um, Hayabusa, the, the samples returned by the Japanese from asteroids, um, fantastic um, things can be done now with modern analytical techniques. And, and that, that feeds into some things coming up. If we look at slide 16, um, the question is what kinds of samples are needed? Well, we need a diversity of materials. It would be nice to have some large rocks from different locations, but the primary thing that we do with, um, with the, the argument we made with Moonrise is we let the impact process bring the rocks to us. And in the regolith, there are many thousands of these small rock fragments in the size range that is perfectly adequate for age dating. The small rock pieces typically make up about five to 10% of regolith. So, you know, most of that material is very, very fine um, powdery material, but we can rake it and we can sieve it to increase the scientific value. And in that way, we can collect thousands of rock fragments. That's a kilogram size bulk sample, one to two kilograms. And, um, we can we can also collect unsieved material, which is a key thing. You know, I put a note in here: the Apollo 11 sample 10084, which um, Armstrong beautifully collected for us to fill one of the rock boxes, became one of the most studied geologic samples ever collected. And you know, it's it's sort of the haystack, if you will. But we know the needles are in there, and we know how to find them. So. Um, so we can work with small rock fragments, and that's what we propose to do uh, with, with Moonrise. With Artemis, of course, with astronauts, we can collect larger rocks, and that's certainly something we advocate for. If we look at slide 17. Excuse now, me. Oh, Brad, yeah, Brad, I, I have to ask on, on slide 16 when you talk about what kind of samples are needed. I, I have to ask, what, what instructions do you give to the astronauts about collecting rocks? Are you just saying, oh, get a bunch of big ones, and we'll sort out the good ones when we get it back? Or can you say, no, take this one and not that one? Is, is well, there some discrimination? You know, you say, yeah, you got to get impact melt breccias. What, what do you tell the astronauts to look for? 
That's that's really a great question, and I think Jim and I could probably talk to this for hours. Um, first of all, there's you know astronauts go through training to learn what these different rock types are, so th so they would be able to distinguish a basalt from a breccia by its uh, whether it's light toned or whether it's dark. They can get an idea of whether it's iron rich or iron poor, and so there are certain certain things we can do. There are also tools that are available now to, to astronauts to use, modern tools that allow them to actually get some compositional information before they collect a rock. But ultimately, I think one of the things we learned from Apollo was collect a diverse suite and collect a lot of material. It's hard to say. Um, I wouldn't want to tell the astronauts, you can only collect five rocks, and by golly, you've got to pick the right ones. Um, that's kind of a recipe for disaster. Um, maybe we can come back to this great question in sort of when we get to Q&A because it's um, it's an important one, uh, but I don't want to I don't want to go too far off track on it. Okay, thank, thanks very much. I guess in, in anticipation of talking about it later, I guess I'd be interested to know how you might be able to do this kind of selection, say telerobotically. You know, if all you have are cameras looking out at the a field of rocks laying on the ground, how do you say, how can you, back on Earth, where a suite of scientists can be looking at all these rocks, can they say, this one, not that one? But but I'll, I'll let you dive into that later. Right, and, and, and that's actually a tough one, because um, if, if they've got a dust coating on them, then that obscures a lot that we can tell oh. about them. But but the, the thing I'm, I'm pointing out here in slide 16 is, if we go for the small samples that are in the regolith, they're well mixed. They come from all over the place in, in, in a local region, and they have a great diversity. We know this from all of the Apollo landing sites. All of the regoliths were like this. They had rock fragments that gave a very good representation of the large rocks that were collected in those areas. And, you know, we, we wouldn't have known that if not for Apollo. Um, okay, slide 17, challenges. And I'm going to sort of take these one at a time. So we'll start with this a couple of scientific questions. Where do you go to get the right samples? And you know, when I when I mentioned challenges, these are some of the questions that we perennially had to answer with uh, the Moonrise concept: is how do you know where to go to get the right sample? If you've only got you know one place you can go, you you darn well better pick it right. And if you look at slide 18. You get the sense in this, this beautiful rendition. By the way, this was Ernie Wright at Goddard made this from LRO data. Beautiful look at the South Balakan Basin. And you look at the diversity there, the geologic diversity, and think, gosh, where would we go? Well, we, we actually um, made the case, and if we go to slide um, 19, we made the case with Moonrise that you could sample almost anywhere in the basin and get samples that you could use to achieve the science objectives. Uh, now, they may be in lower proportions in some places and higher proportions in others, but the very pr process that produces regolith, the impact process that moves materials laterally and, and vertically and mixes them and makes a very well-mixed regolith actually works in our favor. The little model on the right-hand side there, I won't explain this in any detail, but suffice to say that if you if you take the dark blue to be the South Lake and Basin substrate, the materials formed by the big impact, subsequent impacts serve only to dilute that material a small amount. Even the very large nearside basins, such as Imbrium, contribute relatively 
small amount of material. So what you end up with at any given location is mostly reworked South Lake and Basin substrate. So the materials are still there. Now, yes, there are certain places you want to go and don't want to go. You don't want to land inside a crater that's a, a relatively recent crater because the materials would be dominated by that crater. But yet, these are relatively easy um, rules to apply, and we can very quickly narrow down um, the, the, the possible locations to specific areas. But there are many, many such areas and at many different latitudes and longitudes where one could go, including the South Pole. Um, we have great orbital remote sensing now, and we can in, indeed select the most favorable locations for landing and sample collection. So um, with, with our particular proposal, Moonrise, we, we only identified potential locations, but we always left it to have perhaps a workshop where you involve the entire scientific community to go in and select the best sites. This is a model that's worked beautifully for Mars and it would work well in a case like this as well. Um, let's take a look at slide 20. Uh, this is a little bit um, different. I, I put in here the cover of a very nice spaceflight article written in 2019 by Dwayne Day, um, where he highlighted the efforts that have been made over the past 15 to 20 years <clears throat> to mount a mission to go to South Lake and Basin and return samples. And primarily that highlighted the missions that began with with Mike Duke, um, the first of our New Frontiers proposals. Uh, Mike Duke was the PI, I was the deputy PI, and then um, the two later proposals where um, I was the PI after Mike retired. But you see there actually a, a mock-up from uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab of the ascent vehicle coming off the lander, and you, you get a sense there of how that sampling would have worked. We had a very simple sampling mechanism that scooped and sieved. Um, it, it made use of the properties of the uh, regolith to, you know, the, the regolith is very compressible and it can be difficult, for instance, to, to take a core. But the way we did the shearing motion actually um, worked very well and would have done a nice job of, of actually collecting, scooping, and then sieving to isolate the rock fragments um, from the lunar regolith. So um, I, I just wanted to show this sort of as a, um, as, a, as a prelude to talking a little bit about the sampling. So how do you get the right sample? If you look at, at slide 21, um, how do we know when we have the right sample? Well, again, the idea is to collect a great diversity of rock fragments and with one to two kilograms, that equates to many thousands of rock fragments in the two to four to six to, to eight to 10 or, or, or up to 20, we, we would have collected up to 20 millimeters, two centimeter size rocks um, with this device. And beautiful scooping and sieving. There are other ways to do this. There are some very nice high tech ways now. Um, some of you may be familiar with um, Honeybee's Planet Vac. Um, there are, are other, uh, there's the um, tag SAM that is used by OSIRIS-REx. There are other ways to collect samples that are very clever, but this was a, this was a very well-tested um, uh, technique. And again, the idea was to get a good diversity of rock fragments and collect many thousands of them so that we know we would have the materials we need to date the basin. Um, the next slide shows um, 
another question that, that we get, and that is, will the samples be too com complex to unravel the South Lincoln Basin history? Gosh, we still argue in some cases about the basin of formation of some of the Apollo samples. Well, one of the um, one of the, the keys of our approach is to actually land inside the basin, which we didn't do with any of the Apollo samples. Um, we didn't land inside the actual basins. But, it, but, but that's one way to do it, to, to really look at the geologic relationships to ensure that you're getting materials um, that, are, that are from within the basin. And, and we have great remote sensing now that we can, uh, that we can very well target and understand the, the provenance of the materials. Um, we have modern analytical tools. You see on the right-hand side there, um, X-ray computed tomography, which is being used now as we dissect and take apart one of the Apollo 17 cores that was sealed for the past 50 years, um, just for this kind of purpose, to use modern analytical tools on it. Um, again, with small samples, um, we can do an awful lot now, and, and I, I point out, you know, Genesis, Stardust, and Hayabusa, these are very, very small bits of material um, that have been studied. And we can, uh, again, leverage our, our knowledge of, of the area with integrating the um, great remote sensing that we have now through, through LRO, through GRAIL, and through the international missions such as uh, Celine and the Shanga uh, missions in Chandrayaan. Okay, so we can do a lot with the samples. Um, let's look at slide 23, and I want to try to bring this fairly quickly to a conclusion. Um, the uh, one of the challenges, you know, is to is to really show that we can do the job with low risk. And to that end, um, JPL actually built a, a very nice mock-up with working with Lockheed Martin of the lander with a high-fidelity arm and sampling device. And you can see here um, on the upper left-hand side, that's the lander. It's big. These are, are bigger than the surveyor landers. And on the right-hand side, you can see actual high-fidelity test that was being done with a lunar simulant. So, you know, test test, demonstrate, um, keep it simple. These are all uh, a, a lot of the things that can be done. Um, and as, as Leon indicated, the technology is mature for a robotic sample return mission from South Lake and Basin. This has been the case for the past um, 15 years, I would argue. Let's look at slide 24. Technical, and, and again, here we'll just kind of zip through some of these. Um, we have to ensure a safe landing. There are crater and boulder hazards, of course, on the moon. Of course, we've done this. We've done this with Surveyor, but we now have a wealth of information with Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter um, uh, uh, payload, the camera system, the, the laser altimeter, uh, the diviner for rock abundance and, and thermal inertia. We have wonderful data sets to land safely anywhere on the moon. We can spot the boulders. And we know where the boulders tend to occur, so this, this is not the hazard that some would make it out to be. Um, complexity of a mission of this sort, this is something that is very difficult to overcome in um, New Frontiers mission risk analysis. And that is when you have a sample return mission, you've got upwards of five different spacecraft components that have to work you know, pretty much independently in a different phase of the mission. And so this is something that just requires careful engineering, testing, 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 redundancy, and to the extent possible, keeping it simple. 
Um, so, you know, complex mission, multiple spacecraft components. Again, um, China and the uh, Chinese National Space Agency has just completed such a mission successfully last December. Um, the other thing, of course, we do is to use heritage wherever possible. And for example, um, we would have reused the Stardust uh, sample return canister uh, without really modifying that engineering because it was uh, very, very effective. So lots of things that can be done to, to beat down the technical risk. Programmatic risk, I'll just say a few words about this. So the question, one of the questions that comes up now is, will Artemis accomplish South Lake and Basin sample return and science objectives by collecting materials at the South Pole? Well, the SBA southernmost rim actually passes very close to the moon's South Pole, so this is not unreasonable. Uh, materials that were ejected from the basin during its formation make up a large portion of that southern rim and those deposits, which have subsequently been reworked, but there's still SPA material there. So these materials should be found among the comprehensive samples um, collected at the, at the landing site, at the Artemis III landing site. And so we have argued for things like comprehensive regolith samples, as we did with Apollo. Uh, that's, the, that's the way to really sample it. If you look at slide 26, this will kind of put it into graphical perspective. The south circumpolar region is just um, everything um, southward of 84 degrees to the pole. Somewhere in there is where Artemis III will land. And if you look at where South Lake and Basin is and the, the materials that, um, uh, that, that make up the compositional signature, the high iron materials, you see that they don't quite extend to the South Pole. But if we do a very careful model using the remote sensing data, we still come to the conclusion that there ought to be, if we go to the next slide, slide 27, about 20% on average of South Lake and Basin substrate. Will it be easy to find? Getting to the question that was asked earlier, will we know it when we see it? Will we know that a rock is you know, uh, something that has material relevant to the origin of the South Lakin Basin. Well, many of these rocks are going to look like the ones you see on the right-hand side there, 14321. A beautiful big breccia, and if we look at the breccia fragments in there, that's where you have to look to get information about the, the very large nearside Imbrium Basin. So it requires collecting samples like this. You may not know which ones they are when you collect them, but once we break them open, um, back on Earth, we can we can take them apart, take these brushes apart, and figure out the components and, and get the age dates. Um, we we do this routinely with Apollo samples, uh, and so so we know how to do this. Excuse me, Brad. Excuse me, Brad. I I should have brought this up a couple of slides ago when you mentioned it, but I think you said that with regard to landing sites uh, and sampling sites. Craters are not necessarily good. And I'm trying to understand that because if you're after depth and the deeper the better, seems to me that landing in a deep crater gets you more into the layers that you might be interested in. Isn't that well, isn't that the case? Now the, the the issue here is that if we if we land in the interior of a large impact crater, that crater itself will have formed impact melt deposits and will have reset the ages of those materials, oh. not, not entirely, but largely. 
And so it's, it would be better not to land inside a large crater, but one has, it gets more complicated than that. One has to take the geologic relationships into account. For example, where the Chinese landed the Shanga 4 mission in Von Karman Crater is not a bad location because in that regolith is ejecta from another nearby crater, Finson Crater, that actually dug deep, just as you're suggesting, and put material there. And so um, you have to look at the, the, the geologic relationships to really answer that question in detail. But, but there are many, suffice it to say, there are many, many locations in the, in the SPA basin where we could accomplish this mission. Okay, great, uh, thanks. At the, at the South Pole, if we get the chance to be there with Artemis, we collect, uh, we collect samples. We have a pretty good idea. I think Jim and I would agree on the kinds of materials to collect there. Comprehensive samples from a number of locations. Those are big regolith samples. They can be raked and sieved. Um, the, the rake was used very effectively on Apollo to collect um, small rock fragments from the regolith and then collecting a suite of large rocks as well. But we, we shouldn't skimp on mass, and um, we, we should certainly be collecting masses that, that rival those of the latter Apollo missions. Um, and, and also, I would say when you're sampling and trying to understand a, 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 a something the size of the SBA basin, it's continent-sized object uh, location, multiple sample locations will ultimately be what we need and, and provide the best answers. So samples from South Pole, great, supplemented by robotic samples from the interior of the basin, and I think we could nail it. In fact, that's very similar to what we originally proposed to do uh, for South Balakan Basin sample return, but two samples robotically is pretty expensive. Um, let's look at slide 28, and this is the last one I'll show or speak to, and that is just to remind us that the, um, the Chinese have now uh, executed two very interesting missions. One is a lander in the South Palaikin Basin. As I just mentioned, Shanga 4 landed in Von Karman Crater, which is one of the craters in South Palaikin Basin. Now, it, it's not a sample return mission, and it didn't have uh, a payload that could do a, a really great job of characterizing the materials there, although it does have a, a good um, sort of remote sensing tool for looking at different rock types, but it certainly can't do something like age determinations. The Shanga 5 spacecraft did robotically return a sample, first time that's been done since the uh, Soviet Luna missions back in the, in the 70s. And that was from the near side and, and a substantial mass, 1.7 kilograms. So um, they were successful on the first try. They have a backup mission to that, that if Chang'e 5 had failed, they would have executed, and they may now use that to sample within South Balakan Basin and return those samples to Earth. So just something to think about. And then I'm just going to – I included a slide 29. This was a um, something that – a white paper that we wrote for the current decadal survey, and we're making the case that South Balakan Basin sample return is still a decadal survey science priority. And, you know, many topics were addressed in this white paper, and um, you can see some of the uh, co-signatories and co-authors on that. I think in total we had something like 38 co-signatories. But I'll leave it there and um, see if you have questions. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. 
Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. Help others discover our podcast by writing a review on whichever platform you use. Thank you.